the curse on man. God promised um, in the curse that he placed on Satan, he promised to redeem the problem. You have him cursing the serpent and telling him that this he would have there would be enmity between him and the woman's seed, and uh, he would bruise his heel, but that the seed would crush his head. So God, even before he pronounces a curse on the woman and on the man, he's already promising the redemption that would come through the Messiah. That's Genesis 3.15. And we have about a thousand years of history. We have more than a thousand years of history. What I mean to say is we have in the Old Testament scriptures a little more than a thousand year time period where prophets were penning the scripture. Um and then we have what's referred to as this, this, the silent years, right? The, the gap between Malachi and the and then the incoming um, the, the fulfillment of the promise, a lot of the Old Testament promises in, in the person of Jesus Christ. But what took about a thousand years for multiple, many dozens of different authors to pen in the Old Testament was then. Uh, mo, 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 excuse me, much trying to much or most um, most of those promises were fulfilled in just a, a lifetime in the New Testament. So what you have in the Old Testament is 39 books, and in the New Testament you have 27 more, and a lot of it is surrounded around the life of Jesus Christ and the foundation of His Church. Of course, we have eschatology, we have end time things, and we still have certain things to be fulfilled. But it's, it's because of, it is because of these great and precious promises that were made in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ that when we look at things, um, like the greatest reason why we can be confident that there will be a new heavens and a new earth is because Jesus came the first time. It's because Jesus came and he laid his life down and he, he actually he accomplished his own resurrection. Right, the one it's, it's the greatest reason why we have hope for anything, right? Because we're all we're stricken, we're struck, we, we're all so sinful. If, if we'd honestly, if we'd be introspective and and honest with ourselves, we're our own biggest problem. But there's so many there's so many promises in the scripture about the the unity that the Spirit gives the church, right? Unity over essentials and. Uh, liberty and non-essentials, right? How we can how we can be unified, and so many of these great and precious promises we can cling to because God God took on flesh two thousand years ago, and He suffered and died in our place. Um. So New Testament is the anticipation of the Old Testament. You find the New Testament concealed in the Old Testament, and the um. The Old Testament, so much of what is written in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And what you see in the Gospel of Matthew, a Jew writing to other Jews, as he'll say 16 times in this Gospel, this was written that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by the prophet. Right? There's, we know about, you read through the Old Testament, the rebellion, the constant rebellion of the people of God that God wants to use to bless the world. How they wouldn't keep his covenant. They broke it. Although he was, he took them like a, a husband. He took them out of the hand, uh, by the hand out of the land of Egypt. He says that, but you broke my covenant. And he promises a new covenant. So we do have this, we have this silent, what's referred to as the silent years. But I, I want you to know that although there was no new scriptural revelation from God during those 400 years, and if you come from a Roman Catholic background, I'll address that in a second. Although there's no scriptural revelation from God during those 400 years, God, God's providence was still evident, right? There are things that were taking place um, during that time. Malachi leaves off, and Malachi's he's talking about a people, post-exilic people that have come back into the land but that are still incredibly rebellious. And yet God is still promising to go forward with his promise. He's still, he's going to keep his promise to them. You read in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist, 
And we have John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, going before him, preparing a way. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is one of Isaiah 43, 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. Is, um, this, this is one of the scriptures that Mark opens his very rapid gospel with. Right? He says, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says he speaks about John the Baptist, the forerunner. And Luke refers to John the Baptist in 117 in his gospel. One of, uh, yeah. And in Zacharias' encounter with Gabriel in the temple, it says, John, speaking of John, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Um, I wasn't planning on camping on this verse at all, but honestly, guys, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, before I knew the Lord, I, I, I can't think of a person more selfish than me. And I have four beautiful children and anyone who knows me knows that I lay down every single one, day of my life for those kids. The only, the, I'm not looking for a pity party, but the only time I get away from them is so that I can come prepare a Bible study or a sermon. And I'm okay with that. I absolutely love serving them. Twelve years ago, my heart would not, I couldn't even imagine. When Olivia first came into the world in October of 2015, I was terrified. Because I was like, I am so selfish. How can I do this? How can I do this? And the Holy Spirit, I he. I, I saw this baby, and it, when it first came out, I was like, oh, my goodness. It's so funny. I was not planning on going down this road. I was like, holy smokes. She is huge. The doctor picks her up. She goes, she's so tiny. I'm like, are you kidding me? That just came out of my wife. But anyway, um, I, I was blown away. And then, and then my heart melted. I held this baby. I said, I will. I will die for this baby. I held that baby. There was nothing I wouldn't do for that baby. And I, did, I, I, I didn't know her yet. Like she was mine. She had my blood, my DNA, right? But the, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, right? And, and the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. He, he, can, he can turn, he can make the most selfish person. He can renew their heart. Anyway, this is, um, I, I do feel like this is most fulfilled in the person of Elijah and the end times, but this is a, the power and the spirit of Elijah that Gabriel tells Zacharias that John will minister in. This is Zach, Zacharias, um, the father of John the Baptist. So there's 400 years, guys. I'm not going to belabor this point too much, but you guys got to hear this. 400 years might have been absent from scriptural revelation, but they weren't without witness to God's providence and the care to fulfill his promises and bless humanity through Abraham. Right? So what am I talking about? Daniel 2. You guys probably remember Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's, he's terrified by it. When Daniel actually reveals the dream to him, he tells him, you saw this um, golden statue, and it was a frightening sight. Like It, it humbled you. It, it terrified Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar is arrogant. He calls all of his uh, magicians and his soothsayers, and he asks them, Tell me what the dream was and tell me what it means. And they're like, we can't do that. Um, Daniel didn't go. Who knows why Daniel didn't show up the first time. But then someone who served in Nebuchadnezzar's courts came to Daniel and said, hey, look, um, you're at the threat of death here if you guys don't interpret this dream. And he's like, okay. So he goes to see the king and he, and he hears a request and he requests of the king some time, which, which is when you think, okay, in verse 8 of chapter 2, when the Magi, the Babylonians, requested time, he was like, guys, I know you're just stalling. Right? I'm paraphrasing. I know you're just stalling because you know how serious I am. I'm telling you, you're doomed if you don't figure this out. right? And then when Daniel comes, he's just like, Nebuchadnezzar, just give me some time, and the Lord of heaven will reveal what this dream is and what it means. And for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar gives him time. I think of uh, my time at the lab, my time. Um, I... Honestly, guys, I hated that job. And uh, it was mostly because I had to stand up for 10 hours a day on concrete. It was incredibly painful. But my knees, I have, I have bad knees. That's why I moved this up here, by the way. It's not because I'm, I might be full of myself, but that's not why I moved this up here. It's not why I have something to hold on to. Anyway, um, uh, when, when there was an issue, like I remember my coworkers getting like reamed out by my manager. But like if there was an issue with me, for some, my, my, 
my manager always came to me with this attitude of, I know this was a mistake. This wasn't negligence, right? And I always got the, I always got the benefit of the doubt. I always did. And it's because God built integrity within me. And I'm not, guys, I'm, not, I'm trying not to set myself up in as an example because there are many glorious examples in Scripture that you can find. But that makes me, you know, Daniel. Daniel is that example. He requests time. And because of his integrity, Nebuchadnezzar gives him time. So what happens? He goes and he fasts and he prays um, before the, the friends uh, from Israel and Daniel. They fast, they pray, the Lord reveals the dream, and then Daniel comes back and tells them. He says, the Lord of heaven has, has given revealed the dream to me and its meaning. And he tells them, you, you saw a statue and it terrified you, right? You, you felt small in its presence. And he tells them, and I'm going to just read through it, the gold head. You guys know this, the gold head, the silver arms, the chest of silver, the belly and the thigh of bronze, and the iron legs, the iron and clay toes. So what he tells him is these are successive kingdoms that are going to rule over the area of Israel. And at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar was the one ruling. This guy, this makes, this is incredibly important. Okay. This is the Jews, even though they're not hearing from God can still know God is in charge and God is on the throne because of this prophecy. It's one of the prophecies. And so what happens is he tells him, look, uh, your your kingdom's not going to last forever. You're the head of gold. You're the most prestigious, right? But another kingdom's going to succeed, succeed you. His kingdom only lasted 87 years. What follows him is the Medes and the Persians, two different two different nations, Medes, Persians, and the chest of silver, right? They last about 200 years. And after the after the Persians, you have the Greeks, and the Greeks, um, they I'm trying to figure out in my head. They lasted almost 300 years, 250 years. You guys know Alexander the Great. Um, he, he just conquered basically the known world. But as you get all the way down to the Iron Legs, Rome is actually known for being stronger than Alexander the Great was. Um, and Rome conquered Greece. When you leave the Old Testament, the Medes and the Persians are in control, right? They're speaking the language, the Aramaic language. And when you get into the New Testament, Rome is in control. And, and Greek is almost completely taken over the world. And it's a very useful language. It's actually, they found so much use for it that in, a, in Alexandria, Egypt, um, there were the 72 Hebrew scholars who translated the Old Testament into the Greek. And we have the Septuagint, which is so helpful for, for so many things. And of course, we have a copy that precedes Christ, right? We know our Old Testament has been conserved. All that to say, you, a mindful Jew paying attention to the Daniel 2 prophecy about the nations of the world and how those played out, those nations ruling over Jerusalem, over the area of Israel, would know that what God has said is true, right? It's because Israel has been so rebellious, God has been silent, but God's made a promise, Daniel 9. It's an even better promise. It's not who's going to rule over you. It's how you're going to get free from that. Your biggest issue, your sin, the Daniel 9 prophecy, the 70 weeks of seven, he says that there's going to be seven weeks to rebuild and restore um, the wall and the temple and the streets. I don't know if it actually mentions the temple. The temple does get rebuilt, but the wall and the streets in Jerusalem, there's going to be 62 weeks then given um, until the Messiah will come, and then he'll be cut off. And then there's one more week where the prince who comes, he's going to, it's not the prince of peace, but the prince who does come, he's going to set up a treaty with Israel for one week. He's going to break it in half the week. He's going to he's going to stop the sacrifices, set up the abomination that makes desolate in the holy place. And the reason, I mean, it's bleak. Don't get me wrong. Israel's got a lot of problems going on. But these are one of those things. Like you can look at this God who stands outside of time and tells you the things that come to pass before they happen and have confidence, right? So in these years leading up to the opening of these gospel accounts, Matthew there's a debate, Matthew or Mark, but most, I'm pretty sure, unanimously amongst early church fathers, Matthew was considered the first gospel. Um, historians, they differ on was it Matthew or Mark, but there's still the debate. The issue is, it, what it, the, the point is, is that Matthew is jumping on the scene. Right? And another thing to remember is that in the Hebrew canon, um, Chronicles would be the last book compiled. And, and why that kind of matters 
is because you open right up in Matthew and he opens up with a genealogy. And it's it's so boring, right? It's got everyone's life first right in the middle of it. And But the thing is, with Chronicles, it, it was a genealogy. It was so important. Genealogies mattered so much to the Jews. When Ezra comes back with the post-exilic people and he's setting up the priesthood, he disbarred certain Levites from serving in the temple because they couldn't prove their lineage back to Aaron, right? It's this important. And also in that system, you guys probably are, probably remember the, uh, the year of Jubilee when the land's supposed to be restored to the tribes. Also, there's the, the seven years um, where you could sell things out and then the Sabbaths would come. But within the Israelite nation, if a piece of land was sold outside of your tribe, then there was the potential of someone inside of the tribe, a kinsman redeemer who would be able to go buy the land. But if you couldn't prove your lineage to that tribe, you couldn't buy, you had to prove your, you had to, you had to have the genealogies in this culture. Genealogies are so, are so important, but how much more important for the Messiah, right? Because the Messiah, we have so many details in the old Testament about the Messiah. They say, I haven't counted them. They say 330 prophecies on Christ's at first advent. Okay, And we know certain things about him. He's got to come from Judah, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So these things, you've got to be able to prove that. right? If You can't just show up and say you're the Messiah. You, you've got to be able to prove. right? And of course, it's also got to fall. It's got to fall in this time. The other prophecy... This, you guys know this one. Will has taught you well, I know. The 70, the 70 years, right? The 77s. I already brought it up. Oh, I didn't, I didn't give the timeline, though. When, when Jesus shows up on the scene in Mark, he gets baptized. He comes up out of the water. He says, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. Things are, are culminating. Messianic fervor is on a high. And... The, the time that from the going forth to rebuild and restore the temple that was decreed by, Arti by Artaxerxes on March 5th. Yes, there's a debate here. March 5th, 444 BC, which is the date that I take, but I know that doesn't really matter what I take. Anyway, the fulfillment of the prophecy, the 173,880 days, comes on Jesus' triumphal entry. And um, so that's one of those things. This is, this is just to show us that while God was silent for a time, pro like prophetically speaking, he wasn't absent. He was still showing his providence. He was still showing that he's working things out to his end. Um, okay, I just want to address quickly. I hope this blesses somebody because I have, I'm, I'm going to try and make it quick. I've got way too much information on this. The Apocrypha, Okay. So the Apocrypha is a, is a group of books that's included in the Roman Catholic canon. And I, I would just make the blunt argument it shouldn't be included. During the Reformation, right, when um, the, the Catholic Church was making an absolute travesty, using indulgences, selling indulgences, uh, the Reformation started about two decades, excuse me, yeah, two decades later, the Roman Catholic Church holds the Council of Trent, and they start to um, introduce the Apocrypha. They end up deciding that the Apocrypha, this literature that wasn't canonical before, but that it's now canonical. They make a statement. Okay, This is from the fourth session of the Council of Trent, decree concerning the canonical, the canonical scriptures. Listen to this. If anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid canonical books, the Apocrypha, in their entirety, with all their parts, as they've been accustomed to be read in all the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. Yeah. It must be accepted on the pain of anathema. And if, it, if they're using the biblical term for anathema, it means coming under the curse of God. Right? No salvation. Cursed from God. So... When the Reformation happened and there was this pushback against Roman Catholic practices, these books were introduced into the Roman Catholic Church to defend things like prayers to the dead and almsgiving for salvation, right? Um, 
I mentioned the word earlier, sacraments. No, not sacraments. Indulgences. Thank you. Indulgences. Here's, okay, so here's the boring facts, but I hope someone is blessed by it. So Joseph is a first century historian from Galilee, like Jesus, who fought as a leader in Israel when Rome was conquering, um, because he he fell with Israel when Rome came in in 70 AD. He he had a different numbering system because they would group certain books together. Uh, first and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, it all fall under the banner of kings. They would group the twelve minor prophets together. He had a grouping of twenty-two books, but under investigation, the books that were included in Josephus, a first-century Jew's Old Testament canon, is identical to the Protestant canon of Genesis through Malachi, right? And it left off with Chronicles. the The Qumran caves, and you guys probably have heard of this. In 1947, they discovered the Qumran caves and the Qumran cave scrolls. And they found in it the entire Old Testament, but they found hundreds of other scrolls also. The difference that archaeologists found between what was considered canonical and not canonical in the Qumran community was they used a special type of parchment for canonical books and a special type type of script that's only for the 39 books that we have in our Protestant canon. And they had apocryphal books, and none of those books had special script special parchment, or any commentaries on them. Only canonical books did. Um, so this is actually found in uh, Geisler and Nix's intro to uh, general introduction of the Bible. Philo of Alexandria, he's an Alexandrian Jew where the Septuagint was translated. He, um, he wrote extensively, never once wrote on an, apoc- on an apocryphal book. Jewish Targums, which are in- interpretive paraphrases of the Old Testament, didn't contain any interpretations of the apocryphal books, only for the 39 books contained in the Protestant Old Testament. Um, The Peshitta, an early Syriac translation of the Old Testament, it did not include the apocrypha, okay? There's, listen, it says in Psalm 147, 19 and 20, it says, Yahweh declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Romans 3.1 states, What advantage then is to the Jew, or what profit is of, is of circumcision? Much in every way. What, what profit is there to be a Jew? He says, cheaply, most of all, because to them were committed the oracles of God. If anyone was to know what was to be held in the Old Testament, it was going to be the Jews. When Jesus showed up, he didn't chastise them for not knowing what was in the Old Testament, right? For not knowing what books were in the Old Testament, for losing the books. Because they, they, were, they were praised for keeping, for preserving the law. He, he chastised them for not understanding them, right? For, for breaking, heaping more onto it, not for not knowing what should be in there. And the, so Matthew quotes 18 Old Testament books, never once the Apocrypha. Mark quotes 11 Old Testament books, never once the Apocrypha. Luke and and, and Luke and Acts, 17 Old Testament books, never the Apocrypha. John, 11, Paul, 20, Peter and James, 8. The only reference to an Apocryphal writing is by Jude. He quotes the 14th and 15th verse in the book of Enoch, but he doesn't refer to it as scripture. He just quotes it in the book. And there are other, I mean, Paul quotes pagan poets, more than the Apocrypha is is quoted. So the attestation to the Apocrypha is dismal. And I'm only bringing that up because Rome insists, if you get deep into their theology, they insist they they have the gospel. They have salvation. It's maintained through the Roman priesthood, the, the Roman Catholic priesthood. You don't need to go to Rome to be saved. You don't need the Roman Catholic Church. You need Jesus, right? And when they add things to the scripture, it gets people, it gets in the way of your, your relationship with Jesus. And that's, that's the reason I bring it up. So Gospel of Matthew. The gospel, uh, gospel is an Anglo-Saxon word. It's, it comes from the word Godspell, meaning good story, right? Um, it comes from the Greek euangelion. Uh, Sorry, Tom, if I didn't pronounce that right, which means good news. There's four gospel accounts, okay? Sometimes that bugs people. I was listening to someone talk to Frank Turek and say, why are there differences in the gospel? 
and well, she said contradictions, and he said, explain what you're talking about. And so she explains differences. He's like, that's not a contradiction. That's just a difference in, in, in perspective and point of view. And she goes, yeah, but why didn't they just say the same thing? Well, because, I mean, and you guys have probably heard this before, that's what they noted in their in their book. Okay, and then the next thing she goes to, well, why is so much of the gospel plagiarized? And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean? You don't like it when they're different, and you don't like it when they're the same. Like, they can't build on each other. They can't use the same information. He's like, but the thing is, is the gospel has the best of both worlds. The three gospel accounts, the synoptics, that they go on one synopsis, right? They, they tell a very similar story, but it's told from different perspectives. And it's beautiful, right? Because if you guys know who Jay Warner Wallace is, like, one of the best cold case detectives ever. He's known as the, the evidence whisperer, right? He's, there's been cold cases for decades, and he's taken them up, and he's cracked them. Well, he came to the Gospels with that approach. I'm going to scrutinize this to see if they're true. And one of the things he noticed is there's not a conspiracy here. These things are – they have character. They're, they're unique, right? There's, there's different disciples, and they have different lenses. They have different agendas. The Gospel accounts have human authors, so there's human, there's human touches. So four, Matthew. Um, Jesus as sovereign. It presents Jesus as sovereign, as king, as Lord, the one predicted in the Old Testament. I think between direct quotations and allusions, there's 96 references in the Gospel of Matthew to the Old Testament. He's very concerned with what Jesus said, right? Great, great depth in his discourses on his Sermon on the Mount. Mark, he's super concerned with what he did, where he went, how he served. He was Matthew's writing to the Jews, and Mark is writing to the Romans. It's, it's this gospel to talk about how Jesus is the perfect servant. servant. He's, he's moving. It, the, the accounts are short. He moves rapidly. He's always serving people. Luke, the son of man, he's, he's projected as this perfect human. He, he relates to humanity. He shows compassion. He, he loves. He does it in all the gospels, right? But he comes through even more so in the book of Luke and John, which stands, stands, um, stands alone, right? It's written decades later. And he just recounts, this is the ontology of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, right? This, it's in the beginning was the word. The very, as far back as you can go. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him and without him, nothing was created that was created. And that's, that's what John, he, he's, he's written it to the whole world. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, have everlasting life. He also writes in chapter 20, verse 31, many more things Jesus did, but, but aren't contained here. These things are written so that you might believe Jesus is the son of God and that through believing you might have life in his name. Right? He wrote to the world. He wanted people to know who Jesus is. You remember... The, uh, I talked about this on Wednesday night, how doubting Thomas gets a bad rap for not believing Jesus was risen from the dead, but none of the disciples did until they saw him. Thomas wasn't there the first time. Jesus shows back up because Thomas, I'm not going to believe unless I see. He says to him, Jesus said, reach your finger here, John chapter 20, and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And this isn't blind faith. This is blessed are those who believe based on the testimony of those who are willing to die for their testimony. But this isn't blind faith. This is, this is something you actually have, you can put faith in. We talked about evidence for the, the resurrection on Wednesday night. I'm not going to go into that. But Jesus hangs his authority on his resurrection. He says in John 2, the Jews, they, they see him make a whip out of, uh, whip out of cords. He drives um, the money, excuse me, he flips the tables. He drives the animals out of the temple. And then they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Right? They're looking around at Herod's temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scriptures, 
which Jesus had said, right? Thomas wouldn't believe, but when he saw him from the dead, John's saying, oh yeah, he said this. He, he says it, and it's funny. He says it, I just remember going through Mark. He says it in 831, 931, 1030, and every time they're like, what does this mean, right? How about read Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, right? Read Zechariah 12. You can understand what these things mean. I like this next part, though. We're talking about the ontology of Jesus, who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. Continuing on to that, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, right after he drove people out of the temple, during the feast, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs which he did. But he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There's, there's a subtitle in the New King James Version, which isn't inspired. But it, it says the discerner of hearts, right? In the core of man, he knew what was there. When Solomon dedicates the temple back in 1 Kings, and he's, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he's, he's prophesying, he's, he's saying things, he's making prayer to God. One of the things he says is when we, when we sin, right? And, but we turn to this place, and we lift up our hands, and we pray to you. Turn back on the judgment that you've, um, you've, you've pronounced against us, right? He, this is continuing. He says, when there's famine in the land. Oh, actually, I have a whole thing here. I'm sorry, guys. When there's famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshopper, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. And he spread, this is the verse I like, and he spreads out his hands toward the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his way, whose heart you know. Remember, he's saying when he knows the plague of his own heart, when he comes to you humbly, he says, give to everyone according to his way, whose heart you know. And then he says, for you alone, he's speaking to Yahweh, you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. But what does it tell us in John 2? Jesus didn't commit himself to anyone at that time because he knew what was in every man because Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And that was, that's what jo John's trying to get across over and over again. So we will uh, we'll read verse 1. How about that? It says, the book, of the, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I know, guys, this is going to be so fun. But again, this is so important, right? The book of the genealogy, the Genesis, the source, the origin of Jesus. These things are so important so that you can prove who, who Jesus is so that people can have confidence. This is the one God promised. Remember, they could look at the things going on around them and they could recognize, yo, all these, all these world powers that are, well, God said this was going to go this way, right? They can also understand based on God's faithfulness, the time is dwindling down. So Jesus has landed at the right time. He needs his genealogy to be able to prove who he is. It says, um, oh, and son of David, right? It's a messianic term, son of David. Remember in uh, Matthew 12? I know you all remember what I'm talking about before I say it. Um, Matthew 12, the two blind men. Uh, maybe they're blind and lame. Jesus heals them, and the onlookers say, could this be the son of David? Right? Could this be the Messiah? There's two blind men in Matthew 9, so maybe I'm getting confused. But they call out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on us. There might just be one. I'm sure you guys are going to look it up because you're Bereans and you can help me out. Um, there's also Hosanna. Uh, pray, how does it go? Hosanna, praise to the Son of David. Right? Hosanna in the highest, Matthew 27. Son of David, a messianic term. This is Jesus' identity. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David, I am going to read the whole way through this genealogy. 
David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until, until the Christ are 14 generations. Most of you don't need to hear this, but he is the Christ, right? Christ is not his last name. Um, it's not you know, Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. And it's not, there are some generations left out of this genealogy. But this genealogy is set up in three sections from the um, patriarchy of Abraham to the, uh, the rule of David, right? The, the monarchy of David, from the monarchy of David to the captivity, and from the captivity, the exile, to the birth of Jesus. And the reason it's set up this way is it's because of how, how important genealogies are. They set them up mnemonically so that there would be uh, a literary as well as a geneal genealogical symmetry so that people could remember them. Set them up in sets of 14 so that when you go about testifying to people who Jesus is, right? it, it wasn't an uncommon thing. You guys have heard when, the, uh, when religious Jews would be schooled, they, they would force them to learn all of the Torah. Right? I've memorized chapters of the Bible before. And that is not easy. Could you imagine memorizing the entire Torah? So for an oral culture, having, um, having this broken up mnemonically was very helpful to help them remember it. One thing I want to mention really quick is that the Bible makes reference to history. It's not this guru spiritual book that was birthed from the universe out of nowhere right like it's not it's not scientology it's not these weird greek religions and it's not mormonism it it actually it's grounded in history but it also makes use of prophecy the reason why the genealogy is so important is because there's prophetic elements within it but the reason why another reason why it's so helpful is because it's actual historic it's it's historically accurate Right, it both of those things where you read uh, the the angels' account given to Joseph Smith on the the hill Cumorah and the massive civilizations that used to be on the North American continent thousands of years ago, and there's not a single shred of evidence for any of them, for any of the cultures, for any of the names, for the chariots and the war horses. None of that. 2.2 million people died on a tiny little hill in upstate New York, and there's not a single shred of evidence. 2.2 million people. What I'm saying is 2.2 million people didn't die, but the Book of Mormon makes the claim that they did. The Book of Mormon was fabricated by Joseph Smith to get rich and take advantage of the lust that he had. This is, is historically accurate. I want to... Abraham, the first name, right? Abraham. How you think Abraham, a man of faith, he's a friend of God, right? But he he forsook his wife twice because he was scared, right? And what, what happened to his son? His son did the same thing to Rebecca. I mean, how shameful is that? But that's what happens when you let sin dominate your life and you fail to trust God. Your your children tend to carry on those same um those same characteristics, those same, unfortunately, the quirks, the bad, the bad things we can pass down. But Jacob, right? I, so Isaac, Jacob, Jacob is known as the deceiver, right? The game player. He, uh, he wasn't, he didn't have much integrity. Remember, you keep going down this line. 
Judah. Judah the womanizer, right? Begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, the woman who posed as a prostitute, um, was definitely done an injustice by her father-in-law, for sure. But at the same time, she wasn't looked upon highly by the Jewish culture, right? Prostitution and fornication. And um, what do we have? We have Rahab. Rahab, who actually was a prostitute. Rahab, when the spies came into the when the spies came into Jericho, she testifies, the whole land trembles, right? We know that the that the Lord has given over this land to you because we know about the great the great signs that your God, Yahweh, performed in Egypt. Well, that was 40 years prior. Why are you still a prostitute? Okay? I'm I'm I know she repented. She's part of our Savior's genealogy. I'm just saying, like these are the people that make up this genealogy, right? This is Jesus identifying with the lowest of them. And it goes on, Ruth. Ruth was a, a great example. We don't have much bad to say about Ruth. I don't actually can't think of anything bad about Ruth off the top of my head. Um, not that I'm fishing for it, but Ruth was a Moabitess. Remember the, the Ammonites and the Moabites? They hired Balaam to, to curse Israel. And so there was a curse on the Moabites. And yet here you see God's grace. Ruth was brought into the family of Israel. She was redeemed by Boaz, and, Bo and now she's part of the line. Rahab is Boaz's mother. This is crazy. Like, how much does Boaz know about grace? Like, this is amazing. This is the story of the God of grace, right? Having these people as part of his line. And Jesse begot David the king. David was the most celebrated king. In Israel, And I think it has a lot to do with that promise that God made in 1 Samuel 13 when he said, David is a, is, a, is a man after my own heart, right? And he's going to accomplish all the things that I want. So David got a lot done. He brought Israel, he brought Israel up. He set them up militarily, militarily um, economically. He, he did that, but David failed, right? A, an adulterer a murderer, a cover-up. And Jesse, remember how God has to rebuke Samuel when he says, no, you look at the outward man, but God looks at the heart. Well, Jesse, he, he didn't even really consider David at all. He brought all the other sons in front of him, and he said, well, there's one more, I guess. So clearly, Jesse was doing the same thing. He was looking at the outward man, just the way God had just told Samuel, don't do that. Don't do that. I will show you which one I've chosen. And, I, and he says, I've chosen David. Anyway, Solomon. Oh, what does he say? Begot Solomon by her. Doesn't even have her name, but we know who she is. Bathsheba. Her, who had been the wife of Uriah. The one bathing on the rooftop. The one who the king sent for. And then, you know, I. there's, you kind of have to imply certain things. I You can't be completely dogmatic about what happened with David and Bathsheba. But it was in an adulterous affair um, that she got brought into David's life. And we actually know that the offspring, the, the first child died. And it, Solomon was actually the second son. And Solomon, guys, this I mean, the point of this is these are Jesus' people, Right? These are Jesus people. Do you do you feel like like you're you're cast off? Like you're not going to make the cut? Well, these are Jesus's people. These are his grandparents, his grandfathers, his grandmothers. It, you go down Uzziah, thought of as a great king, but struck with pride. He goes into the temple. He wants to he wants to take the priestly position and, and offer burnt. Um, he wants to burn incenses. When they try to, to get him out of the temple, he gets angry and the Lord strikes him with leprosy. We have, I mean, and we, you think of Hezekiah. I mean, the first time I read about Hezekiah, I was like, I got to name a kid after this. This is awesome. After this, after him. And then we're in Hobby Lobby the other day and I'm like, Kai, Kai, Hezekiah. And then I just thought about it like, that probably sounds pretty weird ringing out through Hobby Lobby. But it's a Christian business, so maybe not. Anyway, Hezekiah. I, I a friend at the lab said, uh, so what are you naming him? I said, Hezekiah. He said, that's a, that's a nice Hebrew name. Good for you. Anyway, Hezekiah, he was thought of as a great king, right? But his, 
he also had he had pride issues. Um, success led to arrogance. Remember, he got rebuked by Isaiah for allowing the Babylonians to come. He would pray him through, bring him to the palace. And what he didn't respond humbly to Isaiah, who said, you shouldn't have done that. You have Josiah. Josiah, maybe the most godly king in Israel, but he cut his own life short. King Necho of Egypt is going out to battle in 2 Chronicles 35. So much is said about Josiah. He was the boy hidden away. Remember his, I think it was his, um, there was a female on the throne. Mother-in-law, I don't, I don't remember what his relation to her was, but they, then they presented Josiah, right? The eight-year-old Josiah. By the time he was 16, he had a heart so sold after God. He's tearing down the high places, smashing the idols. He, had, he was so sold out, but then it seems like arrogance, um, presumption, thing, it just it got a hold of him. Because in 2 Chronicles 35, it says, After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho of the king of Egypt came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him, went out against Necho. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What do I have to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house of which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So the scripture is confirming this was a command from God, and Necho was being God's servant. He was being his vessel. He was being used. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo, and the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to the servant, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. He dies. And what you read about Josiah's sons is that they both fail miserably. They both fail miserably. Josiah was a godly king, but struck with his success, right? God hates pride. God can't use a proud servant. He needs a humble servant. He needs us to check our hearts so that we're not using him like an ark that we just drag out in a battle and assume because we got our, his name on us, right? We're going to win. God wants humility, especially when he's rebuked by a pagan king. So these things to say, again, these are Jesus's people. Right. We've, we've read through the genealogy in Matthew, but we haven't really talked about Matthew. That's the end of Matthew's genealogy. But let's talk about Matthew for a little bit because we're not going to get, I'm not going to go past there. But no doubt a Jew, Matthew, originally named Levi, probably had his name changed to Matthew by Jesus, right? Levi, um, quite possibly part of the Levitical line and line to be part of the priesthood. But like many other people, Saul, Abram, um, Peter, well, Simon changed his name to Peter. Jacob changed his name to Israel, had his name changed after encountering Christ. We read in Matthew 8, we read two accounts of men. One one very zealous teacher of the law who comes up to Jesus and says, I'll forsake all and follow you, right? And he says, and he responds to him. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's just, he's letting him know, okay, but it's going to cost you something, right? This isn't, an, this isn't an all expenses paid cruise. We're, we're actually, we're laying our life down for this. He has someone else, uh, it says it's actually a disciple, someone who's actually committed some time into following him already, comes to him and he says, let me go bury my father. And in the culture, that didn't mean his father was dead and he wouldn't let him go home for the ceremony. He wanted to stay around until his father died so that he would have his estate to inherit. And Jesus said, he looks at him, he says, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. The, the spiritually dead can bury the physically dead, Right? There's no indication whether or not either of these two followed Jesus. But what, we, what you have in Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth, he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It's in the third person. It wasn't like, yeah, he stared me right in the eyes. Can you imagine it though? He looked at me right in the eyes. He said, come follow me. And I got up and I followed him. 
here's the thing. That's the proper response. And it's, it's much like the response of Peter, um, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew 4 and Luke 5. They've been fishing all night. Peter comes out. He, he, we, we know in Matthew that he gets in the boat. He starts teaching. Actually, that might be in Luke. In Luke, he gets in the boat. He starts teaching, and then he tells Peter, put your net on the other side. He said, but we've been, we've been hard at work at this all night. We've been toiling all night. Nevertheless, master at your word. Right? He puts the net down, and he brings up a catch so big, everyone's astonished. These guys are professional fishermen. James and John have a business with their dad, a large business. They know how to do this, and their dad, no doubt, even better because he's been doing it longer. And the catch is so large, they're astonished by it. And then Peter falls on his face. Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And he says, no longer will. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fisher of men. Right? No longer will you fish after fish. I'll make you fishers of men. But what happens? They, we know that they come to the shore. Right? They're not going out um, to upscale their business model. Right? They're not cashing in on all their fish and putting it in an account so they have something to fall back on if the ministry goes south. They're not even dragging it up on shore to show it off to their friends. They're literally forsaking everything. It says they forsook all and they followed him. They left it all there. Guys, if, if the God of the universe is calling you to sacrifice something, to lay something down, to forsake something and trust him and follow him, you ought to do it. You have two chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, speaking of what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things will be taken care of. All of these things will be added unto you. The creator of the universe, he, he promises that in his timing, in his timing, he will bring you what you need. Okay? You have in John 15, 9, oh, this blows me away. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Oh my gosh. How, like, I don't even know how to get past that verse. Can you guys even think about that? The eternal trinity and perfect fellowship from eternity past. And he's saying, just as the Father loves me, has always loved me, so I have loved you. That's, it just blows my mind. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in it. And he t it's not mystical. He tells you how to do it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So the promise isn't some stale religious life. The promise is seek to live righteously and honor God. Spread his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. If you keep that commandment, seek God first. If you live in Jesus' love, he's promising your joy will be full. This isn't stale. This isn't, ah, oh, I guess I got to get up. No, it's, oh, Lord, no one else is awake. It's just you and me. That's what this is. This is refreshment. This is peace. Oh, I have a note here about Alexander the Great, right? I don't know how much detail I went into if I even mentioned anything. At 19 years old, his father was who was killed. Alexander, who uh, his tutor was Aristotle, was a bookworm. And then when his father died, he was vengeful. He he just he want, it seems like he wanted revenge. He took over the known world in less than 10 years, but before he turned 30, right? He he owned everything. He had everything at his expense. And you know what happened? He turned into a drunken idiot. And the debate, and most historians agree, he died of some sort of alcohol poisoning. He couldn't control his flesh. He could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his flesh. Jesus is saying, you can try other avenues, right? There are guys, rich, famous, powerful, conquered the world, died at 32 years old. I'm 31. I don't want to die at 32. Okay, guys? We ought to lay our life down at Jesus' feet. Matthew's disillusionment to the world around him, right? Because what you learn about Matthew is he's a tax collector. He's you in the culture, there's a thing called tax farming, and they could buy the position 
to collect the taxes for a five-year period. And what they would do is they would charge extra on top of it to make an income also. So the Jews, are they, they hated them just simply for working for the Romans, period. But they also assumed that he was gouging them for more money. But he also he had the Roman sword at his back. So there was nothing they could do. They had they had to pay up. They had to pay out. So he was he was hated, right? He was an outcast. But yet, with with power, the Roman sword behind him, with money, right? The taxes in his pocket. He there's nothing to this. Jesus Jesus walks up and looks him in the eyes. I assume he did. I don't think it says that explicitly in scripture. But it says he saw a man. Saw, he saw a man sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. I feel weird doing that because I'm not Jesus, but you know what I mean. Feel sacrilegious. Um, oh, Matthew's response amassed for the world so many glorious truths recorded in his gospel that aren't elsewhere. Right? We have that Matthew 11. It was, it was Sarah, which I guess it's good she's not here because I might embarrass her. But she was in rehab. And, well, as long as I'm getting the details right. And she said she read Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And she goes, I want rest. Right? What if, what if Matthew hadn't written his gospel? She would have never written that. She would have never read that. She wouldn't have had the opportunity. What, what would sincere repentance in our life, like, whole sincere and i'm not saying perfect i'm saying sincere repentance what would that afford the world there's other things we have a lot of the gospel that the infancy infancy gospel narrative we also have peter stepping out on the water in matthew 14 no matthew's gospel you don't have remember don't keep your eyes on the storms of life focus on jesus and the more you do it the more natural it becomes but when you take your eyes off jesus and yes i'm making this spiritual but we, we know, right, we're supposed to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. He will protect us. Right? He'll set a hedge about us. So um, one last illustration. 1972, there was a minor burglary at the Democratic National Committee. And probably a few of you know what I'm talking about. It led to the downfall of President Nixon, Right. Charles Coulson was one of the most powerful men in the, the administration for Nixon, and he was working on the Republican National Committee to, to reelect Nixon. And um, he, he was actually, he was like his right-hand man. He was known as uh, Nixon's evil genius, and they even called him the hatchet man. Um, one of the things that was honorably attached to him was that he'd be willing to run over his grandmother to get things done. Right? He, was, he was a ruthless man. Charles Coulson. In 1972, $250,000 was authorized for, intel for an intelligence gathering of the Democratic National Committee during the campaign, during Nixon's... Um, it, was, it was authorized in 1971, and it was used in 1972 for that election cycle. And part of it is believed to be part of the bugging of the Watergate building. Five people attempted to break in, and they believed they tried to bug the Watergate building, to learn tactics about the DNC. And they got caught. And um, I, I read a ton about this. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. But all five trespassers were arrested, none of whom were Coulson. But it eventually led to Charles Coulson's indictment and guilty plea to Watergate-related charges. The journalist Carl Rowan commented in a column on June 10th of, of 1974, the guilty plea, his guilty plea came at a time when the judge was making noises about dismissing the charges against him, but Colson had approached his lawyers and suggested a plea of guilty to a different criminal charge of which he considered himself to be culpable. He was being tried for something he didn't commit, but he went to his lawyers and he, I think, I think the charge was, um, it was like, it was something along the lines of maligning someone's name in order to make the court case go more in his favor. Uh, what do they call it? Sorry, guys, can't remember. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a chargeable offense. Anyway, Colson lost his right. He was disbarred, lost his right to practice law, and was given a one-to-three-year prison, one prison term. But prior to serving, the reason why he was on 
like the judge was looking at dismissing him. They thought they were gonna he was gonna give him information about Nixon, um, make Nixon easier to convict, impeach. Uh, the the reason why he he actually offered up a charge that he felt he was actually guilty of is he met with a man named Thomas Phillips, president of the defense contractor company Raytheon, in Thomas Phillips' home. And there's differing information, but on that night, Thomas Phillips shared Jesus with Charles Coulson. Whether or not he committed his life to him at that time, I don't know because there's differing information, but we read uh, there's information that Charles got the book Mere Christianity from Thomas Phillips. And either after reading the book or after his encounter with Thomas, he did commit his life to Jesus. He Charles Coulson went to prison because of good behavior, one to three years because of good behavior, he got off in seven months. But what the Lord laid on, laid on his heart was that there needed to be prison reform and also that the, the prisoners needed to be reached for Jesus. He started the ministry um, Prison Fellowship, which is now Prison Fellowship International. It's in more nations around the world than any other prison fellowship. Prison fellowship. Um, but that's Charles Coulson, right? So the parallels, the parallels, the parallels between Matthew and Charles Coulson are pretty obvious. Both were important, yet they were corrupted. Both were wealthy, but they were hated. Had it in with the higher ups. They were well-protected, affluent, but yet in an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, they were disillusioned enough with this world that's fading away. They laid everything down and they walked away with Jesus. That's what they got. They got Jesus. If someone tells you that Jesus can't just change, or if someone looks at you and wants to smear your, your past in your face, or Jesus can't just change a person, guys, after years of alcohol abuse and an identity that was wrapped up in partying on February 23rd, two days after encountering Christ, I got drunk for the last time. And because of his faithfulness and me drawing close to him, I have not been drunk since. I'm not. I I drank my last alcoholic drink on May 24, 2012. And the only reason I was convicted about it was because I was underage and I didn't realize, oh, I can't even have one. But um, I was convicted. I never picked another one up again. You know, that's Jesus can do that. Jesus, listen, Jesus hasn't walked away from you. I was hoping to get to this verse. I think it's quoting Isaiah. Matthew says, Behold, the virgin is with a child. And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The other bookend, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you. Right? Matthew starts by saying, God is with us. And what does Jesus say? I am with you. What is it? He says, I am, right? I'm the ever-present. I'm the, I'm the self-sustaining one. Guys, if we're flailing in sin, it's not because Jesus has walked away from us. It's because we've walked away from Jesus. If, if we're dealing with depression, if we're miserable, right? There are, certain, there are other steps we can take, yes. Be good stewards of your body. But Jesus hasn't walked away from you. Remember Psalm 1? Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. A lot of the time, the reason why we aren't happy is simply because we walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And a lot of the time, that's our own counsel. What does it say? A man who isolates himself rages against all sound wisdom and seeks his own. It might be backwards, but something like that. It goes on in Psalm 1. The man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His instruction. His word is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. I'm skipping some verses. It says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. My question, I don't usually do this. Have you confessed your sin and fallen down in humble submission before Christ? Do you worship him? Or do you worship something else? Do you trust something other than, more than you trust Jesus? Jesus is the one who said he'd never leave you or, or uh, forsake you. Is he your great reward? Or is your Christianity nominal? Nominal. Nominal. 
Or worse yet, worse yet, have you used Jesus as something to manipulate other people? Right? Have uh, have you brought people to Jesus only to take advantage of him or to take advantage of them? Have you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss? Have we done that? I pray not. Or if you've never come to this Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the God from all eternity, what's a better time than right now? Right? Even if we don't recognize it, we're all pursuing peace. Paul tells us how we can have peace. It's by having the God of all peace guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. There's no greater way than to have peace than from the Prince of Peace himself. Matthew writes this gospel, and this was written so that it might be fulfilled concerning what the prophet said. He writes it so that you can know God is trustworthy. He writes it so that you can know you can throw everything down and follow Jesus, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for creating a new heart in us, Lord, that loves the word, that rejoices at the presence of the Spirit, that desires to be molded and conformed into your image, to the image of your Son. Father, remind us daily of the price Christ paid. We didn't even get there, Lord. But we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Help us today, Lord. We want to bless you. You've blessed us in this fellowship, in this place, Lord. We want to bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.